Has this ever happened to you? You plan to go out and to have a nice meal in a restaurant, and so you ask the all-important question, where would you like to go? And nobody knows where they want to go, and so you throw out a suggestion, why don't we go here? That's fine. And then you're driving in the car, and you think you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. But then you realize that you have made a grievous error. A grievous error because there was a misunderstanding. Uh, two different perspectives looked at a question two different ways, came up with two different answers, and you thought the answer fine meant fine, but fine doesn't mean fine. And you should know that by now, right? When we look at Scripture, there are times in which there are folks that will look at a piece of Scripture and, and look at it one way, but it may mean something different than what is often applied from that text. One of those passages that sometimes some of those closest to us, some of our, our, our friends, people that we love, people that we hold dear, people who want to follow the Scripture, one of those stories, one of those passages that is sometimes taken out of its context and meant to mean something else is the story of the thief on the cross. And sometimes it's used by people that are very close to us to question, do I really need to be baptized to become a Christian? I want us this morning to think about that story of the thief on the cross. And it is a question that many people have, what about the thief on the cross? He was never baptized, or was he? What can we really know about this thief on the cross, and how does it really relate to my personal salvation? And so these are things I want us to think about this morning. I want us to think about three questions this morning. First of all, how do you know the thief on the cross was not baptized? Secondly, I want us to think, is Jesus' statement to the thief on the cross a statement of eternal judgment, or is it a statement of something else. And I want us to think about what is the real significance of baptism into Jesus' name. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, please be turning. Uh, we're going to eventually get to Luke chapter 23, but I want us to look in chapter 3. So if you have your 23, so if you have your Bibles with you this morning, please be turning uh, to Luke chapter 23. I want to start in verse 39. Luke chapter 23 and verse 39. Let's read the text. Luke chapter 23 and verse 39, Luke begins this way. It says, One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. Because the sun was obscured, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. 
as we look at this story, it's the story of Jesus' crucifixion, and we encounter two thieves on the cross who are crucified at the same time as Jesus. One of those thieves apparently does not believe that Jesus is the Son of God. One of those thieves evidently does not believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and he's kind of making fun of Jesus. He knows what's been said about Jesus because he says, uh, if you, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and save us. And so he knows who Jesus is reported to be. And he obviously doesn't believe, and he starts making fun of Jesus just like everyone else that was there on that day, with the exception of Jesus' mother and a few of the other women that followed Jesus. Everyone else was rebuking Jesus, making fun of Jesus, ridiculing Jesus, mocking Jesus. But the other thief turns his head, I suppose, or at least comments to the thief that was making fun, mocking Jesus, and he says, why are you mocking him? Do you not even fear, since we share the same sentence of death? There is a difference between these two thieves and their views of who Jesus was. But many times people take this passage and they look at this story and Jesus is giving great compassion and, and a promise of security, a promise of relief to this thief who's on the cross with him. And many people take this story out of its context and say, see, here's this thief. He wasn't baptized, so why do I need to be baptized? And before we take that position, we need to ask ourselves these questions. And the first question we need to ask ourselves is, how do you know that this thief had never been baptized? Have you ever thought about that? How do you know? We don't know anything about these two thieves until we get to this passage. And all we know about these thieves are from this passage and the parallels in the other Gospels, which tell us even less than Luke's account of these men. We really know nothing about these men. But we do know something about Jesus and his work. Flip over, in your, if you will, in your New Testament to Matthew chapter 5, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 3. Verses 5 and 6, Matthew chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. This is talking about John the Baptist. Notice how it describes the work of John the Baptist, Matthew chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. It says, Then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea, and all the district around the Jordan, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? John the Baptist was in the habit of baptizing, and he was even baptizing for the forgiveness of sins, according to Mark's account. Mark chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Tell us of how John the Baptist was busy proclaiming the message that the kingdom of God is at hand or that the kingdom of God is coming. And as he did that, he practiced baptism. Mark chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. It says, All the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Notice verse 4. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. 
So both Matthew and Mark record the fact that here's John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ, if you will. And what is he doing besides preaching? He's preaching a repentance, or baptism for repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and he's baptizing. And both Matthew and Mark record that so many people are coming to him, they describe it as all of Judea, all of Jerusalem, all of the surrounding area. And even some of the Pharisees and Sadducees were coming to monitor John because they had heard what he was doing. Large groups of people from all over the region were coming to John to be baptized. Is it possible that this thief on the cross was among that crowd? There is absolutely no way for us to know the answer to the question of whether he was among them, but it's certainly possible. But as Jesus begins his ministry, notice what John records for us in John chapter 3, beginning in verse 22. Now this takes place immediately after the story of Jesus having his discussion with the Pharisee Nicodemus, in which Nicodemus uh, talks with him, and, and Jesus says, I tell you the truth, unless you are born of the water and of the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. You must be born again. And so John, of course, has this discussion with Jesus. Well, how can a man be born again? He can't enter a second time into his mother's womb, can he? And so we have that discussion recorded for us in John chapter 3, but then notice what it says in verse 22 of that very same chapter. John chapter 3, verse 22. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there, was, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing John was also baptizing in Anan near Salim because there was much water there, and people were coming and were being baptized. But John had not yet been thrown into prison. I want you to notice that verse 22 says that Jesus and his disciples were baptizing. And not only were they baptizing, but John the Baptist was still baptizing. And they both picked that spot because there was a lot of water there. That was going to be a problem. And the problem is that Jesus is baptizing so many people. That's what it says a little bit later in John chapter 3. Verse 25, there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was, beyond, uh, who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you, were, you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who is a bridegroom, or he who is the bride, has the bride rather, is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made fulfilled. He must increase and I must decrease. Jesus is being so effective in his preaching and teaching and people are coming from all around to be baptized by Jesus that John the Baptist's disciples, his followers, are starting to get jealous and they're looking at all the people that are being baptized by, by Jesus and they go to John and they say, John, this Jesus guy, he's baptizing more folks than you are. Should we be concerned about that? And John the Baptist has to remind his disciples, look, I told you this was going to happen. I was not the Christ, but the Christ was coming. This is the Christ. He must increase, but I must decrease. 
What the Gospels record is that a plethora, a large number of the Jews living in Judea and Jerusalem and the surrounding areas were coming to be baptized either by Jesus or by John. Now in John chapter 4, verse 1, the idea continues. It says, therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. And then there's the parenthetical statement. Although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away into Galilee. It's apparent as we look at, this pass at the, these passages in John 3 and John 4, that Jesus was preaching and teaching, and as people were coming, he was directing his disciples to baptize those who were responding to that message, and he was being so successful in that preaching and teaching and the number of people that were being baptized as disciples that the Pharisees and those in charge in Jerusalem send spies to find out what's going on, just like they had done with John the Baptist. The point in all of this, as we talk about the thief on the cross, is there are some folks that they look at that story of the thief on the cross and say, well, here's a man who was never baptized, and God, Jesus told him he was going to heaven. Therefore, why should I be baptized? And when we visit with our friends and when we visit with our neighbors who have that question, we don't need to be mean, we don't need to be rude, but we kind of need to point out, well, we don't know if this man had ever been baptized or not, do we? And it's certainly possible, based on the fact that so many people were being baptized, that maybe this man had been baptized before, but the reality is we don't know one way or the other. But it's certainly possible. And that possibility ought to give me pause before I jeopardize my eternal salvation and say, I don't need to be baptized. But here's this man on the cross. So we need to ask ourselves, well, what do we know about this man on the cross based on his comments? One thief is hurling abuse at Jesus, but this thief displays specific faith in Christ. Notice again his comments as we come back to Luke chapter 23. He says in verse 40, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same condemnation? So this man, even though he has been condemned as a thief and is suffering the penalty of a thief by the Romans. Notice this isn't the Jewish authorities that are killing him, but the Roman authorities. So he's suffering that fate, but he clearly has a belief in God. Because the statement to the other thief is, do you not fear God? If he was not a God-fearing person, he would not have made that comment. If he was not someone who believed in God, he would not have made that comment. Now remember the Romans had a practice of not crucifying Romans. The only ones that were subject to crucifixion by the Romans were non-Romans in areas that were under occupation as a way of sending a message to everyone else in the area. You better not mess with us. We're the Romans. So more than likely, this man is also a Jew because we're in Judea, in Jerusalem. And he says, do you not fear God? He has a faith in God. But then notice what he says. He says to Jesus, verse 42, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Remember me when you come in your kingdom. This thief recognizes Jesus as being 
the Messiah. And even though they're all three hanging up on the cross, even though it's very likely that they'll all be dead in a few hours, his statement to Jesus is, remember me when you come in your kingdom. This man doesn't know how or when that kingdom's going to come, but as they're hanging on the cross facing death, he is absolutely certain that Jesus is coming in his kingdom. This is a man of great faith. This has, has greater understanding of the kingdom than many of Jesus' disciples. So you keep asking Jesus, is it now you're restoring the kingdom to God? Is it now that you're restoring the kingdom of Israel? As you look through Acts chapter 1. This man's dying on the cross right next to Jesus, and he asks the question, remember me when you come in your kingdom. This is probably not someone who is brand new to meeting Jesus. This is probably not someone who has never heard of Jesus before. Let's think about it if that was the case. Let's imagine for a second that this man had never heard about Jesus before. And now he's suddenly heard, oh, this is the man who claims to be Jesus, the Messiah. At what point in the last few hours has convicted this man of that position? Was it when Jesus was arrested by the soldiers in the garden and all his disciples ran away and abandoned him? Didn't, when did that convince you? Was it when Jesus was taken before Herod and, and Herod and his soldiers make fun of Jesus? Is that what have, would that have convinced you that, oh, yes, this man must be the Messiah? As a man is standing before Pilate and the entire Jewish leadership and community is standing there saying, crucify him, crucify him, would that have convinced you, oh, yes, this must be the Messiah? As Jesus is stretched across the stone used for scourging, and the scourges are ripping his back apart. Would that have convinced you? Oh yes, this must be the Messiah who's going to restore the kingdom of Israel. If this thief had just met Jesus for the first time, that's what he has seen from Jesus. When this man makes the statement, remember me when you come in your kingdom, he is making a statement that tells us this is a man who knows and believes who Jesus is. At what point did he come to that realization? What was it about Jesus being on the cross just as he is that would have convinced him that he was the Messiah? What was it about Jesus being on that cross that would have convinced him that this is the Messiah? If it's possible that this man had come to his knowledge of Jesus earlier before this point of time, is it not also possible that this man had responded to that preaching and teaching and been baptized? Again, we can't say one way or the other what transpired in this man's life. But before you stake your eternal salvation on assuming that he had never heard of Jesus before, is it certainly possible, or at least possible, that he had heard Jesus in the past, been baptized in the past, and recognized Jesus as the one in whom and by whom he had heard the gospel message?
first question we need to ask is, how do you know the thief was not baptized? And at the very least, we need to admit, I can't know that this man had never been baptized before. And it's certainly possible that he had been. The second question I need to ask myself before I base my eternal salvation uh, on this one incident is what is the statement that Jesus really makes here about? Is it about his man's eternal salvation? Notice again this idea that what Jesus says to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. And compare that to some other passages that Jesus had made some statements with regard to sin about. For instance, in Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, Jesus says that he has authority on earth to forgive sins in the story of healing the lame man. And PJ is right. Jesus is God on earth. And so Jesus in that story of Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, of healing the lame man, says to the Pharisees who are ridiculing him, so that you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, pick up your mat and walk. And the man picked up his mat and he walked. So yes, Jesus had authority on earth to forgive sins. If all Jesus was doing here was forgiving this man of his sins, why did he not say, your sins are forgiven. But I suggest to you that there's something else going on here. Luke chapter 5, verse 20 is another incident in which Jesus tells the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. It was common for Jesus to say that. But what is it that Jesus says to this man? Jesus says, truly I say to you, verse 42, or verse 43 rather, Today you will be with me in paradise. What's paradise? It comes from the Persian word paradiso, which means garden. It's the word that's used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, for the Garden of Eden. We see it again in the book of Revelation, the paradise of God, or the Garden of God. Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise, a garden. Did Jesus, when he died on the cross, go to heaven? Text tells us that when Jesus died on the cross, he went to Hades, the place of waiting for where you go when your soul dies. And we see this throughout Scripture. Look in the book of Acts. Look, for instance, with me in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, we're going to notice the, the progression of what Jesus does after his death, burial, and resurrection, or during his death, burial, and resurrection. Acts chapter 1, notice verses 1 and 3. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he presented himself alive after suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Luke tells us in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, that Jesus did not go to heaven immediately. He died, he was buried, and he was raised. And for 40 days, he walked and talked with his disciples and did many convincing proofs. But on that 40th day, then he went up to heaven. Look at verse 9. After he said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on in a cloud, received him out of their sight, and as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. 
And they also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. After Jesus spent time on earth, after his resurrection, he spent time 40 days with his apostles, and then he went to heaven. But when we go to the next chapter in Acts chapter 2 and verse 23, notice what Peter says in his sermon. We'll actually start in verse 2, 22. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. This is Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost. He says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs, which God performed through you or through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him, again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or allow your Holy One to undergo decay." Notice what he says, verse 29. Brethren, I confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and is buried and his tomb is with us today. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him on oath a seat, one of his descendants of his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. The word abandoned here means allowed to remain. The Greek word translated abandoned here means to allow allowed to remain. In other words, what Peter is saying is, is when Jesus died, his soul was not allowed to remain in Hades. On the third day, God raised Jesus from the dead. Folks, that's the gospel message. Jesus came and died in the flesh for our sins. Being sinless, being God on earth, he carried our sins on his body and he tasted and ingested and fully had death in his own life and had his body put into a tomb and his soul goes where all souls go when they die until the day of judgment to that place of rest that the Greeks called Hades, that the Jews called Sheol. But the power of God did not allow Jesus' soul to remain there, and God raised him up. When Jesus looks at that thief on the cross, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, today you, your soul will be with me in Hades, or you will be with me in, in paradise, rather. He's not saying you'll be with me in heaven because that's not where Jesus went. You'll be with me in paradise. When we read about the story of Lazarus and the rich man in Luke chapter 16, remember Luke is the same author who's recording the story of the thief on the cross. In Luke chapter 16 and verse 23, Jesus, as he tells the story, describes a split in Hades. Notice what he says, Luke chapter 16, verse 23 following. In Hades, the rich man. He lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. 
And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received good things and likewise Lazarus bad things, and now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us there is this great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over here from you uh, from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. Where is the rich man? He's in Hades. Who else is there? Lazarus. But there's a cross or, or a chasm there. On one side of the chasm evidently is a place of agony, a place of discomfort. That's where the rich man is. And on the other side of the chasm is this Lazarus who was poor, mistreated, and, and persecuted all through his life. And now he's in the very bosom of Abraham. That means he's very close to Abraham. A high honor in the Jewish mind. They can see each other. They can hear each other. They're aware of what's going on with one another. And I suggest to you that when Jesus died, that he went to that same place. And as he's hanging there on the cross and he encounters the thief on the cross, he doesn't tell the thief on the cross, I tell you what, today you're going to be in heaven. He doesn't say, I tell you what, today your sins are forgiven. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. A garden. A place of comfort. Just like Lazarus was in a place of comfort. And the rich man could see him and could speak to him but he was in a different part of that place where our souls go when we die. So what was Jesus really saying with this phrase? I suggest to you that he was really saying comfort is coming quickly. Now think about all that Jesus has endured and think about all that this man had endured. He had been falsely accused before the Jewish leaders and beaten. He had been spat upon, the gospel story tells us. He had been tried in part by Pilate and in part by Herod. When he was before Herod, he was mistreated, and his soldiers put a, a robe on him, and they made fun of him. He was tried a second time by Pilate, who punished him by having him scourged, having his back ripped apart by the, by the Roman scourges, and then forced to carry his crossbeam, at least part of the way, to the place where he'd be crucified. The crowds were yelling all the while, crucify, crucify. His disciples had already abandoned him and run away from him at the time of his arrest, which had been just a few hours before. He had gotten no sleep. He had gotten no food. His body was weary. He was led to the cross, to, the, to Golgotha with the crown of thorns on his head. Those thorns had been beaten down onto his head by the rod that they put in his hand to make fun of him. And Jesus is hanging there. And he's being ridiculed by this thief and everyone that was passing by. And perhaps hanging there, this thief in faith is questioning, what's going to happen to me? He's also on his cross. He's also been beaten in preparation for crucifixion because the reason the Romans crucified or scourged people uh, before the cross was to get them as close to death as possible without killing them so that they could hang in agony and stretch out the agony of death for hours. 
And that's what this man had endured. But Jesus had endured something very similar. And as the thief in faith asks Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. They are colleagues in suffering. Jesus is being mocked, and this man sees that Jesus is being mocked by all those around. And he even rebukes the other thief. Jesus' answer is not necessarily a statement of eternal destiny, although we might come to that conclusion. Rather, it is a promise that it's going to be over soon. Everything that you suffer is going to be done soon. This agony that you're in is going to be done soon. And just like Lazarus was in comfort, you'll be in comfort with me in paradise in just a short time. The power of the story is that Jesus, in all his agony, everything that he has, been, has occurred to him, the mistreatment, the beating, the rejection, the ridicule, the abandonment by his disciples. After all that has happened to him in the last 24 hours, Jesus still has compassion and mercy and concern for someone other than himself. In his darkest hour, when all the weight of the sin of the world is on his shoulders, his concern and compassion is still for the man hanging next to him. And he says, don't worry. In just a little while, you'll be with me in paradise. The third question we need to ask ourselves as we look at this story is what is the significance of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection as it relates to baptism? And the answer comes to us as we look in Romans chapter 6, I want us to look there briefly. Romans chapter 6. And notice what Paul says. He's writing to Christians who are perhaps abusing their freedom in Christ. And he says, what shall we say? Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? May it never be. And then notice what he says in Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 2. Or verse 3, rather. He says, or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in a newness of life. For if we've become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who died is freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. And the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God. In Christ Jesus. What's the significance of baptism? The significance of baptism is that it unites us to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. This thief on the cross was already united with Jesus in his death because they were dying on the cross together. 
But Jesus says, you're going to be buried. And today you'll be with me in paradise. The difference for you and I is that we have our sin with us every day, every hour of our day, until we are united with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection through baptism. Paul tells us that when we are united with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection, we crucify that body of sin with Jesus. And we are raised to a newness of life. Folks, it doesn't matter how good you are. It doesn't matter how bad you are. Until you have crucified that body of sin with Christ, you still have that body of sin. And it's because of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection that we're able to be united with him and live in eternity with him when we are raised with him in baptism to live a new life. Maybe you're here this morning and you're asking yourself, should I be baptized or should I not? The thief on the cross was never baptized. Let me ask you to ask yourself a couple questions before you risk your eternal fate on what the thief may have done. Can you say for certainty that that thief had never been baptized? I think we've seen today that you can't know that. There's an extreme likelihood that this man had been baptized before. Second question you need to ask yourself is, was Jesus' statement to this man a statement of his eternal fate? Or was it a statement of Jesus in a moment of compassion and grace for someone else promising this man, soon this torture you're under will be done and you'll be with me in comfort and in paradise. And then let me ask you to think about Romans chapter 6. Have you crucified that body of sin with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection through baptism? Those are the words of Scripture, not my words, not the words of any other man, but the words of Scripture. Are you going to rest your eternal fate on a story from Scripture where all the details aren't given for us and you don't know if the man was baptized or not or are you going to follow what Scripture says and crucify that body of sin and be united with Christ? If that's what you need to do this morning, don't put it off. Do it today. Do it now. As together we stand and sing.